Good morning everybody. We thank the Lord for his presence with us this morning and as we read his word, we pray that he give us the grace to listen carefully. So the first reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. And you'll find it on the church Bibles on page 766. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, page 766. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The second reading this morning is taken from 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 and this can be found on page 868 of the church Bibles. So just to repeat that's 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the word of the Lord, and we are thankful. Do please keep your Bibles open at uh, that passage, 1 John chapter 1, and I'm going to ask the Lord to help us understand it. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the great privilege of an open Bible. 
And we pray that as we come to a new series in in a very special part of your Holy Word that you would minister to each one of us. Please give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike and change us into the likeness of Jesus we pray for we ask it in his name. Amen. What is Christianity? Good question. Um, Outside the church, people are thoroughly confused. One survey that I came across uh, went out onto the streets to ask people this particular question and the answers were as varied as they were surprising. Some people said, uh, Christianity is just a way of life. Other people said, oh, Christianity, yes, that's an organisation. The most surprising answer came from a man who said, well, Christianity is a tool used by capitalists to oppress the poor. When the interviewer tried to kind of steer the public, sharpen their thinking a little bit, by asking the question, okay, well, who is Jesus? The answers were even odder. Uh, Someone said, Jesus is pure energy. Uh, Someone else rather predictably said, well, of course, he's a great leader. But many, many people said, you know, I'm not sure. I just don't know. So what is Christianity? Perhaps the reason that people outside the church are so confused about this is because people inside the church are not really too sure themselves. So just think for a moment about the bewildering variety of churches in our city. Uh, There are many churches, aren't there, which are all about the teaching and not much else. There are other churches which are all about the vibe and uh, the emotional experience, but not much else. And there are still other churches which are all about religious tradition and ritual which looks terribly spiritual on the outside but nobody seems to be too sure what it all means. Now no doubt all these churches sincerely believe that they've found the answer. That they can show us the way to God today. But can they all be doing that? Faced with such a bewildering choice, how can a visitor, an outsider, possibly know who is right and who is misguided? What is Christianity, really? Well, that's the question that the Apostle John is addressing as uh, he writes the letter that we're starting to look at together this morning. He was writing to Christians who had been very badly shaken by a church split. Uh, You can see that if you come with me to chapter 2 and verse 18. Chapter 2, verse verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. 
but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now don't get uh, worried about that word antichrist this morning. It's a terribly emotive word and we'll explore it more thoroughly a little bit later in our series. This morning I just want us to focus on the big picture. John is telling us that a significant number of troublemakers had arisen within the churches of Asia Minor. Now that's very important to see. These people were not attacking the church from outside. Quite honestly, people on the outside of church couldn't care less. Now these people had been sitting in church on Sunday morning for some time, just like everybody else. And then suddenly, they upped and left. And as we go on through the letter we'll see that they were claiming that they had discovered what real Christianity was all about. Even worse, they were saying that what the early church was teaching was not actually the true message. But instead of uh, disappearing quietly, they were actively trying to take other people with them. John says they were leading them astray. So it's hardly surprising, is it, that in a situation like that, people were asking, well, what is Christianity? How can I be sure? And friends, I want to suggest that that is precisely the same threat that faces the church in every generation. Uh, The scholar Don Carson uh, tells of a conversation he had a number of years ago with a Mennonite Christian. The Mennonites are very sincere brothers, by the way. This man was making the point that the history of his denomination in America perfectly reflects the picture in 1 John. He said this, In our denomination, the first generation held the gospel but recognised that it had social implications and obligations. The second generation assumed the gospel and began to identify more strongly with the social obligations. But the third generation denied the gospel and made the social obligations everything. Now, do you see how subtle the slide is? At first, they held on to the gospel, that's stage one. But then they allowed their focus to drift onto secondary matters, and the result was they began to assume the gospel. What does that mean? Well, it means that they stopped talking about it, they no longer marvelled at it, that's stage two. And then by the third stage, they were so preoccupied with these secondary matters they denied the gospel altogether. Now that's the kind of situation that John is addressing in this marvellous little letter. He's writing to Christians who have been badly unsettled by division within the church. And they want to know who to trust and what to believe. And so what John is doing here, you see, is he's writing to remind them of the basics of the Christian faith. He's writing to show them what real Christianity is all about. And his message is, look, 
if your church is teaching the things I'm about to tell you, and if it's committed to living them out, well, you're in the right place. Don't worry. Keep going. So what is Christianity? Well, in our passage this morning, in just four verses, John tells us three important things about it, and you can follow this on the inside of the bulletin you were given as you came in. Number one, he tells us the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity. And the most important thing that John says here is that Christianity is Jesus Christ. You see, it's not uh, a philosophy. It's not a system of thought. It's not a religious organisation. Now, Christianity began by God revealing himself to the world in Jesus. And for the last 2,000 years, Christianity has continued through the testimony of the apostles to that revelation. But then we might say, well, okay, Simon, who is this Jesus? Well, notice, will you, the way that John begins in the first verse. Verse 1. He describes Jesus in two ways. First, Jesus is that which was from the beginning. And then second, at the end of verse 1, he describes him as the word of life. Now, whatever does he mean? Well, you see, John knows that his readers have read his gospel. Throughout the letter, he's always referring to them as my dear children or my friends. So so he knows them and they know him. So, of course, they've read his gospel. And they can't possibly have forgotten the extraordinary way that John introduces his account of the life of Jesus. The very first words of John's gospel are, in the beginning was the word. And of course, when you read that, you're immediately reminded of the very first sentence in the entire Bible, which says, in the beginning, God. And that echo is quite deliberate. What's the point? The point is that in his Gospel, John is saying, look, go back as far as you possibly can in your imagination before anything that exists came into being and you will find Jesus Christ was already there. And here, at the start of his letter, John's focus moves from the creation to the incarnation. And he's saying that word which was made flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary is the eternal Son of the Father. So the word of life didn't suddenly come into existence at Bethlehem on the first Christmas. No, no. He already existed from the very beginning with the Father. And John describes Jesus as the word of life 
in order to make the point that the Christian message is identical with Jesus. You cannot separate Christ from Christianity. And it is absolutely vital for us to grasp this because the essence of Christianity is a relationship with a person. The person is fully God, he's eternal, he was there with the Father at the beginning, but this person is also fully man. He entered our world as a human being. And if we do have this personal relationship with him, then he gives us eternal life. Now friends, that is the unique offer of Christianity. You can't find this life anywhere else. Philosophy can give you terrific theories about life. Uh, A system of thought might shape the way that you live your life. But there's only one person who can give you eternal life. His name is Jesus. Yesterday morning, uh, two Jehovah's Witnesses came and rang my doorbell. And uh, as you know, Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. And uh, these men were terribly keen to tell me how I could have uh, a place in God's kingdom. And uh, I was able to say, well, as it happens, um, I'm busy preparing a sermon on 1 John. Um, And what I've learned is that the kingdom is all about Jesus. And it tells me that Jesus is God. That he was with the Father from the very beginning and he offers me eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Well, these men actually weren't terribly impressed. But John was very impressed. And I want you to to notice with me the language that John uses in these four verses. You see... This isn't dull prose. This isn't a scientific textbook. It's not a systematic theology. There is kind of a poetic quality to the language here. Uh, Scholars reckon that when John wrote this letter, he was probably in his late 70s or his early 80s. And that's important, I think, because the tone of this paragraph is wonder. I want you to find a quiet moment later today and reread this paragraph again for yourself and imagine an old man in his 80s saying this and I'm sure you'll pick up this tone. And it's as if John is saying, look, I'm an old man now but you know what? I can never actually get over this. I've seen many, many things in my life. I've known people who were crucified for this but I've never seen anything that causes me to wonder as this causes me to wonder. That the Son of God, who was face to face with the Father from the very beginning, in a world of absolute purity and perfection, should come into this world for the likes of me. And it thrills me today just as much as it did all those years ago. And so, says John, I want to ask you, 
What about you? Does this thrill you? You know, friends, this is what happens when we're converted. Patsy was talking about it in her testimony. The truth of the message dawns on us. And we find ourselves saying, how can this possibly be for the likes of me? The wonder of it takes our breath away, even if we don't perfectly understand it. Now that emotion might not actually stay with us for terribly long because the world, as always, breaks in upon us soon enough. But if we're Christians, we should always be able to look back and say, Jesus, who was with God from the very beginning, came for me and it is the best thing that's happened in my life. The essence of Christianity is Jesus Christ. But John knows that saying a thing is so doesn't necessarily make it so. And so in this paragraph, he also gives us the evidence of Christianity. The evidence of Christianity. Uh, I have a ministry colleague in London who enjoys telling the story of the time when he was having a lunch with a rather cynical businessman and when they finished the meal over the coffee he said to him, now tell me John, uh, do you believe in God? And uh, feeling rather smug and pleased with himself the businessman said, oh no, I don't think I can really. Um, I can only really believe in something if I can hear it or see it or touch it. And when I uh, hear that story and I read this paragraph, I just can't help smiling because it tells me that God's word is absolutely perfect for every age. When the Holy Spirit inspired this scripture 2,000 years ago, he wasn't simply speaking to Christians in the first century. He was already anticipating the questions of sceptical businessmen in the 21st century. Just look again at the the verbs in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You see, John's making the point that Christianity is grounded on the hard evidence given to the apostles. They were given unique knowledge of Jesus and this knowledge came to them through several channels. The first, of course, is the ears. John says they heard him. Just to make sure that we understand what he's driving at, he says the same thing slightly differently in verse 5. Just have a look at it. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. So the point is that the apostles didn't learn about Jesus and his message from a third party. There was nothing second-hand about it. The words they heard came directly from the lips of Jesus. 
and what amazing words they were. Uh, In John's Gospel, we're told that uh, at a certain point, the Pharisees were were becoming rather alarmed that very large crowds were starting to follow Jesus. They began to fear that they were losing control of the situation in Israel and they sent the palace guard, uh, the temple guard rather, to go and arrest him. But the guards returned uh, empty-handed and the Pharisees said, why didn't you bring him in? And the temple guards responded like this, no one ever spoke the way this man does. In other words, Jesus' words were so extraordinary that even his enemies were impressed. And of course, the apostles heard more of Jesus' amazing words than anybody else. The second channel through which John and the other apostles gained their knowledge of Jesus was with their eyes. Uh, In verse 1, John says, we have seen with our eyes. Now it's interesting this because the visual experience seems to have been more significant for the Apostle John than anything else. Um, He actually mentions what he saw uh, in each of those first three verses. Now why? The clue is that John uses exactly the same word in his Gospel to describe the moment of his own conversion. To see the significance of this, please will you turn to John chapter 20 on page 766, the passage that Alita read for us a moment ago. John 20, page 766. Now obviously uh, what we have here is the account of the resurrection of Jesus And what I want to show you is that in the original, John uses three different words for the verb to see. Uh, We all only see the same word in English, but the, the words in the original are different and they all have slightly different meanings. So come with me to verse 1, John 20 verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, the word saw there in the original simply means that Mary observed the situation. She didn't pause to think about uh, who might have removed the stone or why they did it. No, she immediately reached the conclusion that someone had snatched the body And she goes charging off to find Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John in his Gospel. They come running to the tomb. Now, come with me to verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. Now here, the uh, word saw comes from a word that means to look at something critically. In the Greek, it's the verb theoreo. And uh, that word, of course, gives us our English word theory. So Peter looked at these strips of linen and he tried to work out a theory to explain the missing body. 
And of course, you see, what Peter was wrestling with was the fact that he'd been there when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead back in John chapter 11. And you may remember that on that fantastic occasion, when Lazarus emerged from the tomb, Jesus had to tell his friends to remove the strips of linen that Lazarus had been wrapped in when he died. You can look it up later. But here... Although the body of Jesus is missing, the strips of linen have been left behind. And please will you notice that they were not uh, unwound and neatly folded like they might be in a hospital, for example. Now, in verse 6, John says they were lying there. And the idea behind that phrase is that they were just as they were when they contained the body. But there's more. Because verse 7 tells us that Peter also saw the headcloth folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And John Stott says that a much more helpful translation than folded up would be twirled. In other words, that the headcloth was still wound in the turban shape that it had taken when it had been wound around the head of Jesus. Now listen to John Stott's conclusion. A glance at these grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. They had been neither touched nor folded nor manipulated by any human being. They were like a discarded chrysalis from which the butterfly has emerged. Now that's why in verse 8 John says he saw and believed. And there the verb saw means to understand. It's talking about, so there there you are on Saturday morning and you're doing a crossword puzzle and you've been wrestling with a clue to the crossword puzzle for hours. And all of a sudden, you say, ah, I see, meaning, I understand. And that's the word that John uses three times in our passage in 1 John as he thinks of his own conversion. Others might have doubts, but John had heard Jesus with his own ears. He'd seen the grave clothes and the empty tomb with his own eyes. He understood what it meant, and he believed. Well, come back to 1 John, and notice the third channel through which John and the apostles were given unique knowledge of Christ. At the end of verse 1, he says, we actually touched him with our own hands. That, of course, was the most intimate experience of the lot. I mean, it was one thing to hear Jesus' teaching. That was a wonderful privilege. Uh, It was even more wonderful to see him and see the evidence of the resurrection. But here we have something that is intensely personal. 
I have no doubt, and all the commentators agree on this, that John is thinking of that astonishing moment after the crucifixion when the apostles were gathered together in the upper room and suddenly the Lord Jesus appeared amongst them and he said, look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Luke 24 verse 39. What's the point? What's the point? See, John is telling us that we can have complete confidence in the Gospel. That the offer of eternal life is absolutely genuine because it's based on solid evidence. No, you and I were not there. But the apostles were. And the evidence convinced them, all of them, that the offer of eternal life in the Gospel is real. So real that they couldn't stop talking about it. And that brings us to the third thing that John tells us about Christianity in this paragraph, which is the experience of Christianity. The experience of Christianity. If we go back to where we started uh, and our question, what is Christianity? The answer that John gives is that real Christianity is about fellowship. Come with me to verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Now that's a very strange verse, isn't it? Uh, After all, the apostles are in heaven. How on earth are we going to have fellowship with them? But you see, he's saying that the way to God today uh, is not some private mystical experience where um, I I go away on a silent retreat and I just wait for God to speak to me. Uh, If I do that, I'm going to be waiting for a terribly long time indeed because God isn't going to do that. No, the way to God today is exactly the same as it was when John wrote this letter. And that is that we start by going back to the Apostles' testimony about Jesus. And as I study that testimony and the Holy Spirit opens my heart and mind to understand it and to believe it, well then that testimony brings me into fellowship with God the Father and with God the Son. And of course I have fellowship with the the Apostles in the sense that their testimony brings me to the same experience of believing and trusting in Jesus that they had. That's what it means. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because it also brings me into the fellowship of God's people. All the other people who've had this experience. So you see, how do I know that I have fellowship with God today? It's very simple. If I have fellowship with God, I know that I have fellowship with God if I have fellowship with God's people. Simple. But it's a very particular type of fellowship. 
Uh, it isn't the kind of fellowship that we get by playing sport together, for example. Um, it's the kind of fellowship that develops between people who are totally unlike each other. Uh, perhaps in the normal course of events that have very little to do with one another, but they're brought together out of a common love for the Lord Jesus Christ, based on the solid evidence provided by the apostles. And wherever you go in the world, you will find this fellowship. And wherever you do find it, you realise there's nothing in the world quite like it. On Wednesday evening, in our members' meeting, uh, we were looking at the picture of the early church that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 2. And in that passage, Luke says that the early Christians had some glorious addictions. Specifically, Luke tells us that they devoted themselves, important word, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. See, friends, in the early church, the people were addicted to one another. And as we go on through this letter of 1 John, we'll discover that it is utterly essential to our spiritual growth that we have that addiction too. If we don't have that addiction, all kinds of other addictions will come in and take its place. And none of them will deliver what they promise. So, if that is the first thing the Gospel does in the life of the true believer, the question I've got to ask you is, do you have this addiction? I'm not talking about whether you're simply a member of the local church. I'm talking about you being addicted to your fellow Christians. Because the New Testament knows nothing about living the Christian life without it. What's the sign of an addiction? Well, there are two that I can immediately think of. The first is that you want more of it. Um, so, if the church is committed to the apostles' teaching about Jesus, and if the church is responding to that teaching in worship, well then, by God's grace, we find ourselves saying, this is absolutely amazing, I must have more of this fellowship. Is that right? And the other thing about addictions is that eventually they show themselves. You might be able to, to hide an addiction for a while, but you actually can't hide it forever. And that is especially true about the addiction to the fellowship of God's people. You see, you can't actually be a Christ addict without being a Christ church addict. You actually can't say, I don't care, Jesus, that you died for the church because I'm going to live my life as a solitary individual. You can't say that. That is actually spitting in the face of the Saviour who gave his life to create this fellowship. 
And I think the connection here is that if you don't yet have this addiction, then that's a sign that you probably haven't yet come into the fellowship of the Father. And if that's the case, then of course you haven't yet received the gift of eternal life. And you're missing the greatest joy there is to be found this side of heaven. What that means, of course, is that it's time for you to come back to the testimony of the apostles and take it extremely seriously. Let's pray. Father, we're living in a world that is full of confusion. People don't actually know what they believe or where to go to find the truth. And all the time you've given us the testimony of the apostles who heard and saw and touched the risen Lord Jesus. Lord, open our eyes to grasp the wonder of the fact that Jesus came for the likes of us and may this glorious reality fill our fellowship with lasting joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.